Section 18 of Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The End of General Gordon, Part 2. His seclusion came to an end in a distinctly providential manner. In accordance with a stipulation in the Treaty of Paris, an international commission had been appointed to improve the navigation of the Danube, and Gordon, who had acted on a similar body fifteen years earlier, was sent out to represent Great Britain. At Constantinople he chanced to meet the Egyptian minister Nubar Pasha. The governorship of the equatorial provinces of the Sudan was about to fall vacant, and Nubar offered the post to Gordon, who accepted it. For some wise design, he wrote to his sister, God turns events one way or another, whether man likes it or not, as a man driving a horse turns it to right or left without consideration as to whether the horse likes that way or not. To be happy, a man must be like a well-broken, willing horse, ready for anything. Events will go as God likes. And then followed six years of extraordinary, desperate, unceasing, and ungrateful labor. The unexplored and pestilential region of Equatoria, stretching southwards to the Great Lakes and the sources of the Nile, had been annexed to Egypt by the Khedive Ismail, who, while he squandered his millions on Parisian ballet dancers, dreamt strange dreams of glory and empire. Those dim tracts of swamp and forest in Central Africa were, so he declared, to be opened up. They were to receive the blessings of civilization, they were to become a source of eternal honor to himself and Egypt. The slave trade, which flourished there, was to be put down, the savage inhabitants were to become acquainted with freedom, justice, and prosperity. Incidentally, a government monopoly in ivory was to be established, and the place was to be made a paying concern. Ismail hopelessly in debt to a horde of European creditors, looked to Europe to support him in his schemes. Europe, and in particular England, with her passion for extraneous philanthropy, was not averse. Sir Samuel Baker became the first governor of Equatoria, and now Gordon was to carry on the good work. In such circumstances, it was only natural that Gordon should consider himself a special instrument in God's hand. To put his disinterestedness beyond doubt, he reduced his salary, which had been fixed at ten thousand pounds, to two thousand pounds. He took over his new duties early in 1874, and it was not long before he had a first hint of disillusionment. On his way up the Nile, he was received in state at Khartoum, by the Egyptian governor-general of the Sudan, his immediate official superior. The function ended in a prolonged banquet, followed by a mixed ballet of soldiers and completely naked young women, who danced in a circle, beat time with their feet, and accompanied their gestures with a curious sound of clucking. At last the Austrian consul, overcome by the exhilaration of the scene, flung himself in a frenzy among the dancers. The governor-general, shouting with delight, seemed about to follow suit, when Gordon abruptly left the room 
and the party broke up in confusion. When, fifteen hundred miles to the southward, Gordon reached the seat of his government, and the desolation of the tropics closed over him, the agonizing nature of his task stood fully revealed. For the next three years he struggled with enormous difficulties, with the confused and horrible country, the appalling climate, the maddening insects and the loathsome diseases, the indifference of subordinates and superiors, the savagery of the slave-traders, and the hatred of the inhabitants. One by one, the small company of his European staff succumbed. With a few hundred Egyptian soldiers, he had to suppress insurrections, make roads, establish fortified posts, and enforce the government monopoly of ivory. All this he accomplished. He even succeeded in sending enough money to Cairo to pay for the expenses of the expedition. But a deep gloom had fallen upon his spirit. When, after a series of incredible obstacles had been overcome, a steamer was launched upon the unexplored Albert Nyanza, he turned his back upon the lake, leaving the glory of its navigation to his Italian lieutenant, Gessi. I wish, he wrote, to give a practical proof of what I think regarding the inordinate praise which is given to an explorer. Among his distresses and self-mortifications, he loathed the thought of all such honors, and remembered the attentions of English society with a snarl. When, D.V., I get home, I do not dine out. My reminiscences of these lands will not be more pleasant to me than the China ones. What I shall have done will be what I have done. Men think giving dinners is conferring a favor on you. Why not give dinners to those who need them? No, his heart was set on a very different object. To each is allotted a distinct work, to each a destined goal, to some the seat at the right hand or the left hand of the Savior. It was not his to give, it was already given. Matthew chapter 20, verse 23. Again, Judas went to his own place. Acts chapter 1, verse 25. It is difficult for the flesh to accept. Ye are dead, ye have not to do with the world. How difficult for any one to be circumcised from the world, to be as indifferent to its pleasures, its sorrows, and its comforts as a corpse is. That is to know the resurrection. But the Holy Bible was not his only solace. For now, under the parching African sun, we catch glimpses, for the first time, of Gordon's hand stretching out towards stimulants of a more material quality. For months together, we are told, he would drink nothing but pure water, and then water that was not so pure. In his fits of melancholy, he would shut himself up in his tent for days at a time, with a hatchet and a flag placed at the door to indicate that he was not to be disturbed for any reason whatever until at last the cloud would lift, the signals would be removed, and the governor would reappear, brisk and cheerful. During one of these retirements there was a grave danger of a native attack upon the camp. Colonel Long, the chief of staff, ventured, after some hesitation, to ignore the flag and hatchet, and to enter the forbidden tent. 
he found Gordon seated at a table upon which were an open Bible and an open bottle of brandy. Long explained the circumstances, but could obtain no answer beyond the abrupt words, You are commander of the camp, and was obliged to retire, nonplussed, to deal with the situation as best as he could. On the following morning, Gordon, cleanly shaven, and in the full-dress uniform of the Royal Engineers, entered Long's hut with his usual tripping step, exclaiming, "'Old fellow, now don't be angry with me. I was very low last night. Let's have a good breakfast, a little B and S. Do you feel up to it?' And, with these veering moods and dangerous restoratives, there came an intensification of the queer and violent elements in the temper of the man. His eccentricities grew upon him. He found it more and more uncomfortable to follow the ordinary course. Official routine was an agony to him. His caustic and satirical humor expressed itself in a style that astounded government departments. While he jibed at his superiors, his subordinates learned to dread the explosions of his wrath. There were moments when his passion became utterly ungovernable, and the gentle soldier of God, who had spent the day in quoting texts for the edification of his sister, would slap the face of his Arab aide-de-camp in a sudden access of fury, or set upon his Alsatian servant and kick him until he screamed. At the end of three years, Gordon resigned his post in Equatoria, and prepared to return home. But again Providence intervened. The Khedive offered him, as an inducement to remain in the Egyptian service, a position of still higher consequence, the governor-generalship of the whole Sudan, and Gordon once more took up his task. Another three years were passed in grappling with vast revolting provinces, with the ineradicable iniquities of the slave trade, and with all the complications of weakness and corruption incident to an Oriental administration extending over almost boundless tracts of savage territory which had never been effectively subdued. His headquarters were fixed in the palace at Khartoum, but there were various interludes in his government. Once, when the Khedive's finances had become peculiarly embroiled, he summoned Gordon to Cairo to preside over a commission which should set matters to rights. Gordon accepted the post, but soon found that his situation was untenable. He was between the devil and the deep sea, between the unscrupulous cunning of the Egyptian pashas and the immeasurable immensity of the Khedive's debts to his European creditors. The pashas were anxious to use him as a respectable mask for their own nefarious dealings, and the representatives of the European creditors, who looked upon him as an irresponsible intruder, were anxious simply to get rid of him as soon as they could. One of these representatives was Sir Evelyn Baring, whom Gordon now met for the first time. An immediate antagonism flashed out between the two men. But their hostility had no time to mature, for Gordon, baffled on all sides, and deserted even by the Khedive, precipitately returned to his governor-generalship. Whatever else Providence might have decreed, it had certainly not decided that he should be a financier. 
His tastes and his talents were indeed of a very different kind. In his absence, a rebellion had broken out in Darfur, one of the vast outlying provinces of his government, where a native chieftain, Zobeir, had erected, on a basis of slave traffic, a dangerous military power. Zobeir himself had been lured to Cairo, where he was detained in a state of semi-captivity, but his son, Suleiman, ruled in his stead, and was now defying the governor-general. Gordon determined upon a hazardous stroke. He mounted a camel and rode alone in the blazing heat across eighty-five miles of desert to Suleiman's camp. His sudden apparition dumbfounded the rebels. His imperious bearing overawed them. He signified to them that in two days they must disarm and disperse, and the whole host obeyed. Gordon returned to Khartoum in triumph, but he had not heard the last of Suleiman. Flying southwards from Darfur to the neighboring province of Bar el Ghazal, the young man was soon once more at the head of a formidable force. A prolonged campaign of extreme difficulty and danger followed. Eventually, Gordon, summoned again to Cairo, was obliged to leave Gessi the task of finally crushing the revolt. After a brilliant campaign, Gessi forced Suleiman to surrender and then shot him as a rebel. The deed was to exercise a curious influence upon Gordon's fate. Though Suleiman had been killed and his power broken, the slave trade still flourished in the Sudan. Gordon's efforts to suppress it resembled the palliatives of an empiric treating the superficial symptoms of some profound constitutional disease. The root of the malady lay in the slave markets of Cairo and Constantinople. The supply followed the demand. Gordon, after years of labor, might here and there stop up a spring or divert a tributary, but somehow or other the waters would reach the riverbed. In the end, he himself came to recognize this. When you have got the ink that is soaked into blotting paper out of it, he said, then slavery will cease in these lands. And yet he struggled desperately on. It was not for him to murmur. I feel my own weakness and look to him who is almighty, and I leave the issue without inordinate care to him. Relief came at last. The Khadiv Ismail was deposed, and Gordon felt at liberty to send in his resignation. Before he left Egypt, however, he was to experience yet one more remarkable adventure. At his own request, he set out on a diplomatic mission to the Negus of Abyssinia, the mission was a complete failure. The Negus was intractable, and, when his bribes were refused, furious. Gordon was ignominiously dismissed, every insult was heaped on him, he was arrested and obliged to traverse the Abyssinian mountains in the depth of winter under the escort of a savage troop of horse. When, after great hardships and dangers, he reached Cairo, he found the whole official world up in arms against him. The Pashas had determined at last that they had no further use for this honest and peculiar Englishman. It was arranged that one of his confidential dispatches should be published in the newspapers. Naturally, it contained indiscretions. There was a universal outcry. 
the man was insubordinate and mad. He departed under a storm of obloquy. It seemed impossible that he should ever return to Egypt. On his way home he stopped in Paris, saw the English ambassador, Lord Lyons, and speedily came into conflict with him over Egyptian affairs. There ensued a heated correspondence, which was finally closed by a letter from Gordon, ending as follows. I have some comfort in thinking that in ten or fifteen years' time it will matter little to either of us. A black box, six feet six by three feet wide, will then contain all that is left of ambassador or cabinet minister or of your humble and obedient servant. He arrived in England early in 1880, ill and exhausted, and it might have been supposed that, after the terrible activities of his African exile, he would have been ready to rest. But the very opposite was the case. The next three years were the most momentous of his life. He hurried from post to post, from enterprise to enterprise, from continent to continent, with a vertiginous rapidity. He accepted the private secretaryship to Lord Ripon, the new Viceroy of India, and three days after his arrival at Bombay he resigned. He had suddenly realized that he was not cut out for a private secretary, when, on an address being sent in from some deputation, he was asked to say that the Viceroy had read it with interest. "'You know perfectly,' he said to Lord William Beresford, "'that Lord Ripon has never read it, and I can't say that sort of thing, so I will resign, and you take in my resignation.' He confessed to Lord William that the world was not big enough for him, that there was no king or country big enough, and then he added, hitting him on the shoulder, "'Yes, that is flesh, that is what I hate, and what makes me wish to die.'" Two years later he was off for Peking. "'Everyone will say I am mad,' were his last words to Lord William Beresford, "'but you say I am not.'" The position in China was critical. War with Russia appeared to be imminent, and Gordon had been appealed to in order to use his influence on the side of peace. He was welcomed by many old friends of former days, among them Li Hung Chang, whose diplomatic views coincided with his own. Li's diplomatic language, however, was less unconventional. In an interview with the ministers, Gordon's expressions were such that the interpreter shook with terror, upset a cup of tea, and finally refused to translate the dreadful words, upon which Gordon snatched up a dictionary and, with his finger on the word idiocy, showed it to the startled mandarins. A few weeks later, Li Hung Chang was in power, and peace was assured. Gordon had spent two and a half days in Peking, and was whirling through China when a telegram arrived from the home authorities who viewed his movements with uneasiness, ordering him to return at once to England. It did not produce a twitter in me, he wrote to his sister. I died long ago, and it will not make any difference to me. I am prepared to follow the unrolling of the scroll. The world, perhaps, was not big enough for him, and yet how clearly he recognized that he was a poor insect. My heart tells me that, and I am glad of it. On his return to England, he telegraphed to the government of the Cape of Good Hope, 
which had become involved in a war with the Basudos, offering his services, but his telegram received no reply. Just then Sir Howard Elphinstone was appointed to the command of the Royal Engineers in Mauritius. It was a thankless and insignificant post, and, rather than accept it, Elphinstone was prepared to retire from the army, unless some other officer could be induced, in return for eight hundred pounds, to act as his substitute. Gordon, who was an old friend, agreed to undertake the work upon one condition, that he should receive nothing from Elphinstone, and, accordingly, he spent the next year in that remote and unhealthy island, looking after the barrack repairs and testing the drains. While he was thus engaged, the Cape government, whose difficulties had been increasing, changed its mind, and early in 1882 begged for Gordon's help. Once more he was involved in great affairs, a new field of action opened before him, and then in a moment there was another shift of the kaleidoscope, and again he was thrown upon the world. Within a few weeks, after a violent quarrel with the Cape authorities, his mission had come to an end. What should he do next? To what remote corner, or what enormous stage, to what self-sacrificing drudgeries, or what resounding exploits would the hand of God lead him now? He waited in an odd hesitation. He opened the Bible, but neither the prophecies of Hosea nor the epistles to Timothy gave him any advice. The king of the Belgians asked if he would be willing to go to the Congo. He was perfectly willing. He would go whenever the king of the Belgians sent for him. His services, however, were not required yet. It was at this juncture that he betook himself to Palestine. His studies there were embodied in a correspondence with the Reverend Mr. Barnes, filling over two thousand pages of manuscript, a correspondence which was only put to an end when, at last, the summons from the King of the Belgians came. He hurried back to England, but it was not to the Congo that he was being led by the hand of God. Gordon's last great adventure, like his first, was occasioned by a religious revolt. At the very moment when, apparently forever, he was shaking the dust of Egypt from his feet, Mohammed Ahmed was starting upon his extraordinary career in the Sudan. The time was propitious for revolutions. The effete Egyptian empire was hovering upon the verge of collapse. The enormous territories of the Sudan were seething with discontent. Gordon's administration had, by its very vigor, only helped to precipitate the inevitable disaster. His attacks upon the slave trade, his establishment of a government monopoly in ivory, his hostility to the Egyptian officials had been so many shocks, shaking to its foundations the whole rickety machine. The result of all his efforts had been, on the one hand, to fill the most powerful classes in the community, the dealers in slaves and ivory, with a hatred of the government, and on the other to awaken among the mass of the inhabitants a new perception of the dishonesty and incompetence of their Egyptian masters. When, after Gordon's removal, the rule of the Pashas once more asserted itself over the Sudan, a general combustion became inevitable. 
the first spark would set off the blaze. Just then it happened that Mohammed Ahmed, the son of an insignificant priest in Dongola, having quarrelled with the sheikh from whom he was receiving religious instruction, set up as an independent preacher, with his headquarters at Abba Island on the Nile, a hundred and fifty miles above Khartoum. Like Hong Siu Tsuen, he began as a religious reformer and ended as a rebel king. It was his mission, he declared, to purge the true faith of its worldliness and corruptions, to lead the followers of the prophet into the paths of chastity, simplicity, and holiness, with the puritanical zeal of a Calvin. He denounced junketings and merry-makings, songs and dances, lewd living, and all the delights of the flesh. He fell into trances, he saw visions, he saw the prophet and Jesus, and the angel Israel accompanying him and watching over him forever. He prophesied and performed miracles, and his fame spread through the land. There is an ancient tradition in the Mohammedan world telling of a mysterious being in the last succession of the twelve holy imams who, untouched by death and withdrawn into the recesses of a mountain, was destined at the appointed hour to come forth again among men. His title was the Mahdi, the Guide. Some believed that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Others believed that he would be Christ himself. Already various Mahdis had made their appearance. Several had been highly successful, and two, in medieval times, had founded dynasties in Egypt. But who could tell whether all these were not impostors? Might not the twelfth imam still be waiting, in mystical concealment, ready to emerge at any moment at the bidding of God? There were signs by which the true Mahdi might be recognized, unmistakable signs if one could but read them aright. He must be of the family of the prophet, he must possess miraculous powers of no common kind, and his person must be overflowing with a peculiar sanctity. The pious dwellers beside those distant waters, where holy men, by dint of a constant repetition of one of the ninety-nine names of God, secured the protection of guardian angels, and where groups of devotees, shaking their heads with a violence which would unseat the reason of less athletic worshippers, attained to an extraordinary beatitude, heard with awe of the young preacher whose saintliness was almost more than mortal, and whose miracles brought amazement to the mind. Was he not also of the family of the prophet? He himself had said so, and who would disbelieve the holy man? When he appeared in person, every doubt was swept away. There was a strange splendor in his presence, an overpowering passion in the torrent of his speech. Great was the wickedness of the people, and great was their punishment. Surely their miseries were a visible sign of the wrath of the Lord. They had sinned, and the cruel tax-gatherers had come among them, and the corrupt governors, and all the oppressions of the Egyptians. Yet these things, too, should have an end. The Lord would raise up his chosen deliverer, the hearts of the people would be purified, and their enemies would be laid low. The accursed Egyptian would be driven from the land. Let the faithful take heart and make ready. 
How soon might not the long-predestined hour strike when the twelfth imam, the guide, the mahdi, would reveal himself to the world? In that hour the righteous would triumph and the guilty be laid low forever. Such was the teaching of Mohammed Ahmed. A band of enthusiastic disciples gathered round him, eagerly waiting for the revelation which would crown their hopes. At last the moment came. One evening at Abba Island, taking aside the foremost of his followers, the master whispered the portentous news. He was the Mahdi. End of section 18